Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum. Law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. Truth Serum wants to thank Hartwood House for becoming a sponsor of the Truth Serum podcast. Hartwood House is a world-class medical detoxification facility that's located in Marin County, California. Alcohol or drug addiction doesn't have to destroy your life or the ones you love. There is hope. For more information about Hartwood House, go to www.heartwooddetox.com. That's www.heartwooddetox.com. Hartwood House where addiction meets compassion and recovery. In our legal segment, I'll review some provisions of the Service Members Civil Relief Act and recent bulletins from the Department of Justice and the CFPB impacting lender and landlord rights when interacting with active duty and non-active duty military personnel. I'll review special rights and protections afforded to those who serve in the military and I'll explain to you why you should know what they are so you can avoid costly lawsuits. Then join me as I interview economist Allison Schrager. She wrote an acclaimed book entitled An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other, other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. I'll interview Allison about her book and why risk management can be one of the most important things you do in your life. Then Allison and I will discuss the concept of what's come to be known as the Great Reset. Opponents believe it's a well-orchestrated power grab by global elites and politicians designed to strip individuals and nations of their rights and to implement a socialist agenda. Proponents believe it's the natural progression of the need to act globally in a unified manner to address income inequality, allocation of resources, and climate change. Like it or hate it, it may be just around the corner. Tune in and see what you think. The law. Most people honor and appreciate those who serve this nation in the military. I sure do. Many lenders and landlords may not be aware of special protections that are afforded to service members, and in particular, active duty service members, when they're trying to enforce legal rights. The failure of a landlord or lender to understand and abide by these requirements can lead to costly lawsuits. I want to give you a brief overview of some of the, what I refer to as the SCRA, which is the short version of Service Members Civil Relief Act, so that you can identify them when interacting with service members, either as a landlord or a lender. Primary protection for service members comes from the SCRA, and there's also state laws that augment or, in most cases, expand such rights. In late December of 2021, the U.S. Department of Justice and the CFPB issued two joint letters to landlords and mortgage servicers, reminding them 
of the protections afforded to service members, and they tried to explain how these rights work in connection with other provisions and protections that were previously enacted under the CARES Act. In other words, they want the broadest possible protection for service members. Let me give you a brief review of the SCRA provisions that I think most impact you as a lender, excuse me, a lender or a landlord. First, it should be noted that the SCRA protections also extend to dependents, generally family members of service members, and sometimes they occasionally are extended to those who've co-signed along with a service member. I want to go through six statutory SCRA provisions. Here we go. Number one, a 6% cap on interest rates for financial obligations incurred prior to entering military service. Number two, protections against default judgments in any civil court proceeding where the defendant service member does not make an appearance. Number three, a requirement for the creditor to obtain a court order before foreclosing on a mortgage taken out by the service member before the service member began military service. Number four, protection from vehicle repossession without a court order. Number five, the ability to terminate a residential lease without penalty if the service member receives orders to transfer known as permanent change of station or PCS orders. And number six, a prohibition on the enforcement of storage liens on a service member's property without a court order. If you want to determine if your borrower is in the military and entitled to SCRA protections, the Department of Defense maintains a database that's operated by the Defense Manpower Data Center, and it can be accessed and searched for free. Now back to the joint DOJ and the CFPB letters. In the letters to landlords and mortgage service providers, the DOJ and the CFPB highlighted the fact that the SCRA must be viewed in context with other general consumer laws and provisions that were enacted during the pandemic, including the CARES Act. So in other words, they want to allow the greatest possible protection and they want to ensure that landlords and servicers have policies that ensure that this happens. In the letter to landlords, the DOJ and the CFPB generally discussed SCRA early lease termination and eviction protection provisions. The DOJ and the CFPB also focused on more specific applications of the SCRA early lease termination protections. One in particular was waivers of SCRA rights, because in some instances, a lender or a landlord can ask a service member to waive rights, but can they be enforced? The DOJ and the CFPB inform landlords of their position on when these waivers can be permitted and when they won't be. For example, the waiver must occur during or after the military member's period of service. It must be in a separate document from the contract, and the waiver must be written in at least 12-point font. In the joint letter to mortgage servicers, the DOJ and CFPB wanted the servicers to be aware that just because state eviction and foreclosure moratoriums and forbearance agreements may have terminated or expired that were uh, implemented previously under the pandemic, that this doesn't remove the requirement that services review protections afforded to the service members, including eviction and foreclosure provisions allowed under the SCRA and related laws. Now, one other thing should be noted that California has its own separate provisions that protect service members under Section 408 of the California Military and Veterans Code. Under California law, protection of service members is extended to loans entered into prior to the time the service member entered into the military service. This is more expansive than federal law. California law protects every active duty service member. 
California requires a court order in order to proceed to a foreclosure sale where the borrower is a service member currently on active duty and up to one year after the service member's left active duty. So what should you take away from this? The bottom line is that lenders and landlords have to always ensure that they're verifying whether a borrower is in the military and if so, on active duty before taking collection actions and even when imposing interest rates that might exceed the, the permissible cap. If your borrower is in the military, then a comprehensive review of state and federal laws providing these protections must occur. Truth Serum wants to thank Iron Oak Home Loans for becoming a sponsor of the Truth Serum podcast. Iron Oak's a full-service portfolio private money lender, and it's a servicing company. It's located in San Ramon, California, helping its investors to achieve maximum return by investing primarily in California real estate. For borrowers, not all borrowers have AAA credit, and sometimes you need a lender who understands and who can get you a loan when you need it most. Iron Oak can help. Great service and great people. If you want more information, go to www.ironoak1.com. That's www.ironoak1.com. Or call Rich at 925-803-2465. Now join me as I interview economist Allison Schrager as we discuss risk management and her book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. And then as we discuss The Great Reset. Allison Schrager, let me give my listeners a little background for you of who you are. Are you an economist, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor at City Journal, and you've co-founded Lifecycle Finance Partners LLC, which is a risk advisory firm. You've written for a wide variety of publications, including The Economist, Reuters, and Bloomberg, and you're the author of a book called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. Welcome to Truth Serum. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. I want to focus on two subjects in my time with you today. The first one is I want to explore your book that we just discussed. And second, I want to discuss what's being referred to worldwide as the Great Reset, uh, what it is and why, if it's implemented, it'll change everybody's life on the planet for either good or bad. All right. In your book, you immediately get the reader's attention by focusing on the concept of risk as seen through the eyes of the owners and workers and customers at legal brothels in Nevada. So my question is, generally explain your concept of, of risk management in a person's everyday life and what led you to go to a highly controversial industry like prostitution to explore risk? Well, I think what people always have to understand, and it's a lesson we're definitely learning a lot now, is you know, risk is all about trade-offs. It says if you take a risk, you can get more. You can get more money, you can get higher returns, you can, you know, ha have more adventures in life, but you know, you, they're also risk loss. And um, my idea for that book was that, you know, I, I my background is a financial economist. And this is sort of the central premise of finance is that there's no extra return without taking some risk. And 
But my idea was, well, that's true in any industry. Risk is actually a huge component of price. We don't think about that a lot as economists, but it's true. So I figured every industry price must be based on risk. And I ended up at the brothel, you know, really because I was invited there to do a story about their negotiation skills because they have a negotiation training program. And I was there to go through that just because honestly, I'm bad at negotiation and I was excited to learn. Can I, can I stop on that one for a second? That, that's that's fascinating to me. There's a, there's a uh, negotiating skills program between who? Between uh, the, the customers and the uh, workers? or Well, every transaction is individually negotiated. And they told me when they uh, were trying to pitch me writing about the brothel that... Um, each tra- each transaction really negotiated, but the women, you know, these are young women. They don't really, you know, co- they're not coming from business backgrounds, so they don't have a lot of skills in how to negotiate, especially because women, you know, often have a hard time asking for more or being confident. And you have like very rich old men negotiating with young women. So they have a negotiation training program for the women there. Amazing. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Well, that's what brought me there. But, you know, as I, I was talking to all these women about their negotiation skills, it came up, you know, what they're charging because I really was getting into how much you get for this and this and how do you negotiate this? What is this service versus that service? And it struck me that like anything that, you know, risk is baked into prices there too. Riskier sex transactions cost more. Um, The whole premise of the brothel, illegal brothel is much safer, but for that reason as well, you also have to pay 50% of all your earnings to the house. And it's also more expensive for customers. It's more expensive for them and they must pay for that. So it's the central truth we know of risk, which is if you want to, you know, have a safer transaction, it's going to cost you and there's just no way around it. Good. All right. Let's get into a little bit. In your book, you list five risk rules. I'll say what they are and then we don't have time to go through all of them, but I'll go through a couple that I've identified that I thought were pretty interesting. The five uh, rules of risk in your book are no risk, no reward. Number two, I'm irrational and I know it. Number three, getting the biggest bang for your risk buck. Number four, be the master of your domain. And number five, uncertainty happens. So let's look, look at number one for a second. In your no risk, no reward section, you say in your book that a risk is more likely to work out if you actually are seeking reward you want versus taking a risk because you just want change, which results in losses more often. And you give examples of quitting a job, or ditching a relationship or looking for a fresh start as having less of a chance to succeed if there's no clear goal and you only want a desire for change. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think one problem, and this is true in financial markets too, even with very experienced investors, is people don't really have a well-defined goal. Like sort of like when you invest in the stock market, you know, are you investing for your retirement? Are you investing for a vacation next year? Depending on what your goal is, you know, you would actually have a very different risk strategy. And it really determines how much risk you should take in your portfolio. But I find people often do the same, make the same mistakes again. Like I know so many people who just get fed up with a job and they're just gonna quit and then they end up sort of lost for like a year and really their career takes a real step back as opposed to if they just really thought through, what about this job makes me unhappy? What about it makes me happy? You can have a clear way of knowing one, can I make this job work if I change positions or two, have a better sense of where you want your career to go before you quit. So I think we often don't, we we misspecify risk. And the question I'm working on a lot right now is we really specify risk by what risk isn't. So risk has no universal definition. It is just what safe isn't. But safety means very different things to different people. So you really have to define what you need to feel safe, 
what it is you're looking to get out of life. And then you can, from there, figure out how much risk you need to take to get there and even what risk even means to you. All right, so take it, let, let me jump off on that for a second. So let's say you're a person who's confused. You don't know what you want to do with your life. Uh, is this something that you think is introspective and you figure it out on your own by deep thinking or do you have to get counseling or both? I think both. I mean, I don't know about counseling, but you can also take risks and try things. Like in my own career, you know, I did a PhD in economics where I was certainly supposed to be a professor. And, you know, I, I went on the job market and I'm like, I went to all these interviews and I'm like, I just know I don't want to be here. You know, I've kind of just done this degree, this very hard involved degree that took my entire 20s. And like, I just realized, like, I never even had a plan. I just kind of did this. So I, I kind of like took what was at the time a huge risk. Like I started writing for The Economist and they didn't even see me, you know, as a PhD economist, like that seemed like a crazy thing to do. But it just all I knew is it sounded like fun. And I felt like I didn't have any fun in grad school. And I'm like, I see other people who have fun in their jobs and that's just what I want to do. And it turned out to be such a blessing. Eventually they started paying me. I ended up doing other things where I got to deepen myself as an economist, but that experience really got me on the road of writing and developing this whole new skill of how to really communicate well to people. So sometimes you do just sort of have to jump in and take a risk. And to some extent I did know what I wanted, which is I wanted a job that made me happy and I enjoyed doing every day. That's funny. One antidote from your, your anecdote from your book I thought was interesting was I, I, I remember you said something about you were going for uh, an interview or something for an economist job and you stopped off at Barney's because you just didn't want to delve into the economist world. And, and, and at Barney's basically said, uh, you can't just show up here and do an interview, but you were really conflicted at that point, right? Yeah, because again, I was just looking for a job that looked like fun. And I was like, fashion looks like fun. And it's not. A, so, uh, yeah, but it turns out, you know, obviously you have to be qualified for any job you interview for. <laughs> That's true. Uh, let's go to factor number two. I'm a rational. I know it. I, I want to focus on that. I thought it was very interesting. You highlight this factor, this risk factor by interviewing a world poker champion, Phil Helmuth. And you show how he succeeds mm -hmm. by recognizing his emotional and his irrational impulses and how he uses them to act outrageously at the poker table, throw other poker players off to enhance his chances instead of making poor card playing choices. So if you would elaborate on this for my listeners who may not play poker, but they make impulsive or rational decisions, especially in finance. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I give people more credit than I think a lot of other economists that we actually are capable of making good risk decisions. I mean, there's a huge literature that we're, we're completely, we're, when faced with risk, we, we completely shut down and make terrible decisions. I don't, I don't know if that's always true, I think, or if we do make a decision, maybe it's more rational than it looks. But there are some well-documented biases like loss aversion. And this is a big deal in poker, which is if you're down, you're going to play more aggressively than when you're up. And, you know, if you're being a level-headed, rational player, you shouldn't do that. So I interviewed Phil Helmuth, who's like known for being this a very fiery guy. If he loses, he like turns over tables and screams at everyone. But I read his biography and he, he described how he learned how to get control of his emotions when he's actually playing and how all these times when he was a young poker player, he was very talented, but he had kept like losing money when he was down. And he sort of had all these tricks now to keep himself rational. Like he never puts too much of his own money at stake. He sort of is able to sort of tune out some feedback and that keeps him from being, you know, and he, what's amazing to me is that he is it. he's known for being this reckless guy, but he actually is very, what they call patient and that he doesn't bet on that many hands. 
Like, I think he said he bets in like 8% of his hands and the average person bets on 30%. So he's actually a very disciplined player. Even if he's down, he won't just bet to get in the game and try to make his money back. And this is the skill he's really learned. So I think this shows that anyway, we have these biases that maybe mean we don't make the best choices. If we practice and recognize them, we can really overcome them and make a good make a good risk decision. Good. Let's. Uh, this is maybe a little too technical for some, but I think some may get a kick out of this, especially those who are gamblers. But I was I was fascinated by the concept of the break even effect, part of rule two mm-hmm. of I'm, I'm irrational and I know it. And let me uh, let me dig in on this a little bit more. In essence, I found I I understand the break even effect to be a risk concept. It holds that when we lose money whether it's in poker or stocks and have a choice or a chance to win it back right away or to come out ahead, we take bigger risks and subject ourselves to bigger losses. So let me give an example just of how I understood it and tell me if I'm on track and tell, tell my listeners uh, where I'm going wrong here. So you discuss one example. Say you look at your cards and you decide whether you're going to bet $500 to either win $800 or lose your $500. And in your mind, you think looking at your cards, you got a 50-50 chance. So you're saying the average person who does that is going to walk away. But Mm -hmm. if they had previously lost $500 in a hand, that the break-even effect takes uh, takes over, and suddenly you want to win it all back, and maybe the possibility of winning more, so you make the poor choice of continuing on. Is that accurate? And elaborate on it if it is. Yeah, that's true. And in fact, it's not just a half that people walk away. If you were up five hundred dollars, you'd be even more likely to walk away because you're like, "I'm up. I don't want to. I don't want to risk it." Oh, so it goes both ways. Yeah. Ah. So same thing in stocks too. You think this because I think you were saying a little bit about how people are anxious to maybe if their stocks are winners to sell them and then keep the losers with the idea that they're going to come back and and, and get up to uh, at least what they bought it for. Is that in your mind regular? Yeah, it doesn't work that way. You're right. If a stock's going down, it might be going down for a reason. Like it might not be a very good stock, but people are more way more likely to sell their winners and keep their losers, which obviously is not a great investment strategy. But again, people said they want, they they don't want to admit that this was a bad bet and sort of cut their losses. Okay. All right, let's go ahead go to rule five where that's your last rule there. It says uncertainty happens. And in your book, you interview, uh, well, in your book, you advocate preparing for the unknown or the irrational and allocating risk. Why would this rule help Joe Sixpack or someone like me, the ordinary investor or person? Well, actually, I spoke to H.R. McMaster. Um, he is the uh, 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 general who was in Trump, uh, Trump's National Security Advisor. And um, he, he, is a, he is a great intellectual. And I mean, I think we can learn a lot from warfare because you think with warfare, you play, you plan a lot, right? But nothing ever goes as you think it would be. And I think that's true for everyone. I mean, risk is sort of a human construct that really is only a couple hundred years old. And is this idea that we can estimate all the, dip- we never know what's going to happen in the future, but we can put an estimate on it. We can sort of is that risk is uh, in some by some definitions a probability distribution. It's all the things that can happen and how probable they are. But as you can imagine, this is a human guess, and almost all the time it's based on things that have happened in the past. But this is again like nailing jello to a wall. We never know what the future is going to hold. The the 
the future very rarely exactly repeats the past. I mean, we're certainly living in a whole new world now for like every industry. We don't know what work's going to look like. Um, we don't know what investing is going to look like. So I, I always knew I'd end that chapter and I would talk to a general because it's like, I, I feel like stakes are so high in war and they plan so much, but things never go as they expect. So what can you do about that? And I think there's a valuable lesson about flexibility and resilience, which is, you know, it's good to plan. It doesn't mean that like, just because you've made this risk distribution, it turns out nothing happened. It doesn't mean it wasn't valuable because it forced you to think through all the things that could happen. And, you know, most of the time you might even be right, but it, it sort of, you know, in preparing for it, that also helps you build resilience. You just can't get too attached to the plan and you have to know to ditch the plan. Um, when, you know, things aren't working or circumstances change. Okay, good. So McMaster's, let's say it's, it's, it's a war. They've got to be prepared. He's got 500 advisors and AI algorithms, and hopefully they're, they're, any permutation can be theoretically vetted out. But me and you, let's say, does it translate to the point like if I'm saving for retirement and all of a sudden I get some catastrophic illness and I don't have money or suddenly I win the lottery and I have more money? Is that the type of thing you're saying prepare for that or? Yeah. I mean, to the extent that you can, um, or as I said, just maybe the stock market crashes the, you know, week before you want to retire. I mean, you, you don't plan for that, but you want to build up resilience. You want to have a plan. I said, if you have a catastrophic illness, hopefully you have some forms of insurance, um, or, you know, have a plan to get Medicaid or something. Um, it's, is it all about you sort of, it's interesting. I was just reading a paper the other day about the usage of the word risk and how it's evolved over time. And it's really since the 90s, we stopped even talking about risk as being a bad thing. We always put risk in the context of control, that we could control risk, that we could measure it, that we could reduce it in our lives, which was never, people never talked about it that way before. They kind of just accepted that the world was random. And um, I think we definitely see that with the pandemic as well. Like definitely more of a feeling that we can control a respiratory virus, which you never would have thought you could before. Although to some extent we have. I mean, we, you know, as as bad as it feels like our performance has been in a lot of ways, we have contained it um, much worse. It could have been much worse. So we definitely have this sense of that we have control, but we really never really do. So it's really about balancing humility and sort of, you know, planning for the best and, and sort of but expecting the worst. I got you totally. It's existential. In, in the long run, we all got a plan for what happens at the end, right? All right, coming in for a landing on your concept of risk and rules for managing risk, what's the biggest mistake you see investors and people in general today making as far as risk allocation goes? I think that they, they use too short a time horizon when they're making decisions um, or sort of uh, I think they also, as I said, they forget that the word the operative word in risk premium is risk. So for example, like all of a sudden after well, how many on like 10 years of value, the value premium, people thinking that wasn't bearing out, and everyone's like, oh, it's value time. It's like, yeah, there's a premium for investing in value stocks, and that means it might not deliver for 10 years, and then it does. That's the point. And if you want to if you want to follow that strategy, you can't time it. You never know when value is going to have its moment. Or when growth is going to have its moment, you have to say, okay, I'm comfortable with the fact that these premiums, maybe over a 30-year horizon, will develop, develop higher returns, and so I'm going to invest in them. Or if you know what, my time horizon is too short, and I can't handle 10 years of bad returns, don't invest in them. Good. 
All right, as a transition over to the next subject, which is the Great Reset, uh, what's your impression of Bitcoin and Ethereum, all these marquee names that use blockchain and distributive ledger technology? The, the tech's real, but is it, are, the, uh, are the names, are they just like the tulip mini and they're going to just go their way, or do you think that they have a chance of enduring long term? I mean, I have to admit, I've been skeptical the whole time, but so many smart people I know are real believers. So that gives me some humility. Again, you never know. I think even still, uh, after all that's happened in the last month, I think it's still very expensive for what it could be. I mean, the way I, I said, I'm an old school, the way I was trained to think about finance, which is something for something to have value, it has to have intrinsic value. And I believe that these... Um, Technologies do have value, but I'm not sure it justifies the price of Bitcoin and all the other cryptos right now. I think there could be a lot of value, particularly in terms of the payment technology, in terms of sort of just how we, I think I'm also really intrigued with NFTs about how we can transfer all sorts of things with value, not just money. I, I think that's really exciting and intriguing. And I think that could really change a lot of how we function, but I'm not sure it justifies the prices that the assets are commanding. I think I agree with that too. All right, let's dig into the Great Reset a little bit. It's a polarizing concept that either has ca catastrophic or therapeutic consequences for everyone, depending on who you ask. So let me set a general definition for my listeners, and then uh, let me ask you some questions. So I'll, I'll define for my uh, discussion the purpose of the Great Reset is it's been going on for years, the concept, but it's gained much greater visibility and traction. And in June of 2020, it was the title of the fifth... 50th annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. And the concept supported by politicians, activists, and businessmen all over the world has three central concepts. One, creates conditions for a stakeholder economy. Number two, it builds into all economies equitable or sustainable policies based on environmental, social, and government metrics. And three, it harnesses the emergent, emerging technological innovations, which they call the uh, fourth industrial revolution like AI and new industrial materials to uh, uh, monitor this and to control it. So in the words of the IMF, it's green growth, smarter growth, and fairer growth. In my words, it's an alliance of unelected and powerful people worldwide who want to limit national sovereignty and impose a global rearrangement of the social and economic system. What's your overall opinion of the uh, Great Reset? Is it a fad or a worldwide movement that'll last? I think it's sort of utopian, um, and I don't think it really accounts well for human nature. Again, it comes back to risk. When I read this stuff, it reminds me, I mean, there seems something almost like Chinese about it, of like, let's engineer things so we can get everything we want and engineer all the risk out of society. And you know what? Like, that doesn't really work, or it doesn't work long term, because really what you need for sustainable growth, which ultimately is what drives better life, a better life for everyone, is innovation. And that's not going to happen unless you take risks and people who take bad risks pay the cost for it and people who take successful risks are compensated for it. Like, you know, I, I, I read these things and it's always like, we want to control how growth goes. We want to control who gets rich and who gets rewarded for what. And it's just like, I don't think I've ever seen, you know, I, I'm sort of an amateur economic historian. I've just never seen, um, you know, an economy where you have successful, sustainable innovation and, you know, long-term prosperity, you know, where you feel like you can control everything. 
That's a great point. I mean, you're you're kind of you're skipping to the end, and I, I appreciate that. The idea of a real no, it's good. I I, I like that. I mean, because I think that's the point. I mean, they're they're using meaning the proponents are saying there's two general reasons why it's 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 got to happen. Number one, it's the world's resources are really owned by everyone, not those who can uh, capitalize on them for their own particular benefit. And two, that the world's assets and inventory can be strictly accounted for and managed. But, I mean, I look at that. I mean, if you want to look at it, you're, you took it to the nth degree, and that is uh, taking away the risk takes away the incentive as well. But the control factor is, is equally frightening, isn't it? Yeah, well, it sounds like they say that, but like, it, it sounds more like a much more command control than what we have now. With this sort of the decentralization we have, I mean, I'm not sure what it means to say not everyone owns resources. Some people own resources. Some people own more resources than others. Some countries have access to resources. Some individuals do. I mean, that's property rights. That's true. I mean, if you look at it in traditional capitalism, especially how this country is grounded, but if you look at it in terms of what the global reset agenda really is in many respects, it's that uh, no one owns the world's resources. We all own them. We're all in it together. It sounds utopian. But working it out, I mean, you see most systems that try and do that, they seem to, the, it turns into control, command and control and misery for everyone. I think that for me, the intellectual flaw with this argument starts with, I think they're operating on the assumption that growth is zero sum, right? That if we're growing, someone else is losing, there's a finite number of resources. But if you go with an innovative model, I mean, you use resources more efficiently. So anyway, we have limited resources, we get better at using them, so we use less of them. And we see this with development a lot. Like, I mean, we used to burn a lot of coal to function as a society, and we get greener every year. Some of that is through um, government subsidies, but some of it is just the natural market. So I think, you know, it seems to be operating under this fixed amount of resources, and we have to allocate them better through some sort of central authority. But as I said, that takes away the innovation to actually do more with less resources. Yeah, I think that's true. And again, you, looking at some of the, uh, the more questionable side, because growth, a uh, great reset advocates will say they'll look at the pandemic, for example, as a wartime event. And again, the pandemic, certainly, I mean, whether in five years, we'll look back and, and see things we never even imagined of how this thing was managed. But looking at it in terms of that it's a wartime event allowing you know, greater social control seems to be giving people a jump off to be able to say that uh, the global reset is also necessary because we now have to move into greater areas of control to help those who are greatly affected by the pandemic. Is that a canard or is that? Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like it's gone that well. I mean, people are really unhappy. And, you know, I, I don't know if we really, I mean, you can argue this is a wartime event and some of the, is this control we had to live off of was necessary, but I don't think it, it should be a model going forward if it's, you know, we're not in a sort of the midst of a major health crisis. I mean, it doesn't seem like people are particularly happy. I mean, even as I said, I mean, I think it's nice that workers have more power and people are getting better jobs, of course, but it also seems like certain level of chaos every time you even go out to dinner. So yeah, that's true. I don't know if this is really like what we should be hoping for. Yeah. And again, looking at, at the pandemic, I mean, things have happened. I think no one could have ever uh, foreseen at all. I mean, in terms of whether it's social control, unelected bureaucracies, you know, issuing edicts and people, some blindly follow, some are, are not. But it seems like the Great Reset is a, a continuation in some respects of desire to say that there's a global solution as opposed to a national individual one. Do you think that's true or no? 
I mean, maybe such a thing exists, but I don't think we've ever had a, a sort of inter- the experience of international institutions has not been that they're very good at deciding on it and making everyone follow it. I mean, I mean, there's the UN, and I mean, just even look at the EU. Those are that's that's a much smaller. Uh, example of countries coming together and trying to come up with with solutions, and even they can't do it. And these are countries that have a lot more in common. They have much more of a shared history. They have much more of a shared culture. I mean, can you, I mean, you said, like, I just, I think it's somewhat utopian. And, you know, I think, I think also something we saw as well in the pandemic, that there usually isn't one right or wrong way. Usually it really comes down to values. And certainly this is, you know, this is all about trade-offs and deciding how much risk we're going to bear. And the amount of right risk for one person versus another is completely different because we all have different values and risk tolerances. So, and each country has different values and risk tolerances. And some of that is determined by where they are in their development cycle. I said poor countries tend to be more comfortable with risk because they kind of have to be. So we can't really impose on them rich country levels of risk on them when they haven't really gotten fully finished developing. So I think it's sort of, as I said, it's very utopian and I cannot imagine all the countries coming together and deciding on anything together and actually having it be enforceable. Yeah, I would, I, I tend to agree. I will say to you from the concept of, of Big Brother, I think there are people who believe that Big Brother knows better than you do. And again, outside of an actual war, has there ever been an instance in the history of mankind where governments have efficiently managed a uh, I, I, a centralized economic plan that worked for anybody? Can you think of one? No, I mean, I wouldn't call myself much of an Austrian, but like I I am sort of Hayekian in in the idea that I don't think anyone really knows anything. So what you have to do is just have a market where a bunch of people come together. And I mean, the reason I became an economist is I found something so beautiful about the price mechanism. The idea that you have all this chaos and you can come together with something. Is it perfect? No. Do markets get it wrong sometimes? Yes. But they do a much better job than anything else we've ever found. Well said. All right, let me hit you with one last one here before I ask my listeners to uh, tune into where they can follow you and get your book. Is uh, If government attempts to implement a worldwide agenda, like say the global reset works, some factors that seem to allow the possibility of it happening, a big brother type reset, would be number one, if you look at China, they've got a social scorecard and they've implemented it. They're one of the larger economies in the world. And they're using digital currency right now to be able to track not only people's financial transactions, but their social interactions, what they do, and then rate them on the basis of these social scores to allow them either perks or, or to, to ding them. And in many instances, way worse than that. So do you see digital currency as a, a game changer in, in the sense of being able to both regulate and monitor people's activities so something like the global reset could even eclipse the uh, normal restrictions you might have on power grabs. Well, isn't the point of digital currency that you don't have control, that you can do your transactions without anyone knowing? Well, when you say Bitcoin, I mean, again, that's that was the whole theme of Bitcoin, the uh, cyberpunks and everybody thought they could fly under the radar. But what you're seeing now, I mean, if, you know, China, again, when they're, they have a digital yuan, what they're doing and they're telling businesses that want to come do business there that you've got to sign up, have a digital wallet. They're going to look at every transaction you do. And if the government can debit or take money in and out of your accounts or tax you based on your green score or lack of green score, it would change everything, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, not only that, one of the reasons I've heard for digital currencies is it can be used as a monetary policy tool. Like you have all your money in your bank account and they're just like, you know, we want you to spend more. So we're going to start taking money out unless you start spending more. I don't think that's a good idea either. Um, 
you know, I, I don't see, uh, I mean, maybe ch ch in China, you know, they're more used to that government level of control, so go along with it. But I don't see people here tolerating that, let alone everyone across the globe. I think uh, certainly a lot of countries are a little bit too, especially in Europe, they love data privacy. I mean, think about all what the Germans went through with um, their history. They're very, very concerned with privacy. And as much as they tend to trust the government, maybe more than we do, they also you know, again, are incredibly paranoid about having all being very private. So I don't see everyone going along with it. I think uh, the Chinese are a little bit more compliant, although even I'm not sure they are either. But it, it, it's hard to imagine us really adopting digital currency. I'm not quite sure, to be honest, what problem it even really solves. I mean, what, we have. Yeah, I mean, we we already almost all my transactions right now are digital. The only difference is I don't really have a bank account that the Fed can control. But or at least not directly. And I, I'm good with that. Well, I got you. But to take off on this concert, because I think that is why it's worth vetting out now, because you, a digital, you know, a lot of people think of digital transactions. I can wire funds or I can do a credit card transaction. Digital currency is different. And that is if they take away all paper currency, you're, you're certainly not going to be able to wheelbarrow up you know, turnips or, or bags of gold to change things. You'll have a medium of exchange that will be done digitally. And if every one of those transactions is monitored and regulated by the government and can be based on social scores or whether you don't spend enough or you, you're not green enough, I mean, that really could be something. If you look at this, the far-fetched aspect of that is belied a little bit by the pandemic. No one thought that the governments would ever tell people don't go to work and then send out checks, right? But people line up willfully there. And now I think a lot of people are looking to the government as their salvation. I would have never thought we would have done this. I would have never thought we would have given people so much money. And you know what surprises me the most is that people aren't as excited about this money as you would think. You know, like take the enhanced child tax credit, which was like we sent checks to everyone with a family, like everyone, like unless you make a gazillion dollars. But it's a really unpopular policy. It's shocking how unpopular it is. Uh, considering it's us just giving people free money. I don't know if people associate with inflation or what, but it's not, people don't want money from the government as much as I would have thought. That's interesting. Although I will say a lot of people took a lot of money. I, I, I tend to think that the people want resilience and they want independence, but we'll see. And that's the whole concept. We'll, we'll I think they want money from the government, but they don't want everyone else to get money from the government. So, uh, you know, I think that there's the problem. Good. All right. Enjoying talking to you. Let me uh, give you an opportunity to tell my listeners where can they find your book? And if they want to follow you or get in touch with you, uh, how would they do that? Um, so the book is An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. It's at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the usual places. Uh, I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion. So you can find me there or you can always drop me an email. Um, I usually try to respond, allison.schrager at gmail. Um, and yeah, I, I said I am on all the social media too. Good. Joy talking to you. Anything else to say before we're done? No, this has been really fun. Thank you. Appreciate it again. And I uh, hope to stay in touch. If anything I can ever do for you, let me know. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Allison. Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com 
or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos.